from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please join me in our call to worship. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change, open to us a future in which we can be changed, and grant us grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. Beloved, hear the good news. Who is in a position to condemn? Only Christ. And Christ died for us. Christ rose for us. Christ reigns in power for us. Christ prays for us. Believe the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Forgiven, freed, and faithful people, let us worship our God. Our first scripture lesson comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 9. It can be found in the Old Testament on page 368 of your pew Bibles. Listen now and hear God's word to you. King David said to the whole assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the temple will not be for mortals, but for the Lord God. So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, for the gold of things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and the wood for the things of wood, besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, antimony, colored stones, and all sorts of precious stones, and marble in abundance. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver, and because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talents of refined silver, for overlaying the walls of the house, and for all the work to be done by artisans, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver." Who then will offer willingly, consecrating themselves today for the Lord? Then the leaders of the ancestral house made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord, 
into the care of Jehil the Gershonite. Then the people rejoiced because these had given willingly, for with single minds they had offered freely to the Lord. King David also rejoiced greatly. And from the New Testament, first letter to Timothy, the sixth chapter, verses 17 through 19, can be found on page 199 in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. As for those who in the present age are rich, command them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but rather on God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life that really is life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we may be changed, that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, before there were professional fundraisers, before there were development officers, before there was a master's of arts degree in philanthropic studies, before there were silent auctions and golf outings, before there were family and community foundations and charitable trusts, before there were online crowdsourcing sites like Kickstarter and Kiva, before there were NPR weekend pledges, uh, university appeals, and before even annual church stewardship drives. Before all of it, there was King David and his Temple Capital campaign. He delivers a speech that's recorded in 1 Chronicles 29, probably given in the second half of the 10th century BCE, and the results that followed that appeal are the envy of any preacher or any annual campaign team or committee, especially those who spend countless hours trying to rally their congregation to make a pledge. Envious primarily because of King David's great success, the author describes the people possessing a single-minded focus to get things done, a single-minded focus to give toward the completion of the temple project to build this house of God. The author also tells us that the people gave willingly and gave what was needed, the preacher, and the annual campaign team not only has envy, but they also might possess a certain level of contempt in response to how the writer portrays the collection of these resources to build said temple. David makes the appeal. In verse 5, he makes the ask. And in verse 6, the people respond. One verse. If every campaign could be that easy. If everyone responded in an immediate way, one verse, no stress, no worrying if the money is going to come in, if we're going to meet our pledging goal for the ministry vision of the upcoming year, no follow-up phonathon. It's coming next week <laughs> to reach out to folks that haven't made a pledge, wouldn't it be great if our campaigns could be fulfilled in one verse? But they're not. It's not the world in which we live, pastoral leadership, finance committees, annual campaign teams, and congregations in the mainline tradition know the data, they know the struggles, they know the challenges of asking people for money, and they know how hard it is to equip followers of Jesus to be intentional about connecting financial resources to the ministry and mission of the local church. They are aware 
of the ever-growing competition between charities and nonprofits vying for dollars amidst what Peter Buffett calls the charitable industrial complex. There are approximately 1.5 million nonprofits in the United States today. 1.5 million contending for $358 billion annually, 32%, about one-third will go to religious organizations. Since 2001, there has been an increase in the number of nonprofits by 21%. The competition is fierce, and it grows each and every year. These congregational leaders are aware of this perpetual competition and of their perpetual need to sell the vision, to stay on point, to articulate the mission, because if that's not clear, folks might say, you know what, the juice is not worth the squeeze, and they'll steward their financial resources somewhere else. These congregational leaders are also mindful of the economic uncertainty and the potential volatility of our financial markets. They are aware that, that caution may rule the day, that people will hold on to financial assets just in case we have what Nicholas Tlaib likes to describe as a black swan moment, an unexpected event in the world or in a, in a particular nation that rattles the economy, that pushes it towards recession. These congregational leaders are also well aware that the average American owes $7,500 in credit card debt, about $155,000 on their mortgage, and for those that have a student loan, they owe about $31,000 in total. These leaders are aware that the middle class is squeezed, that wages have flatlined, and for many, work in their field is hard to find, and the skills that may have been required just five to 10 years ago, skills that they actually possess, are now outdated. Which, without the development of new skills, leaves these individuals on the outside looking in. Finally, these congregational leaders are also mindful of the ever-increasing distrust that people have for institutions. In our post-Watergate, post-Enron world. No institution has been immune from suspicion or outright disdain from schools to churches to the government to banks to corporations and the list goes on and on. This is a challenge even for a local church with an impeccable record. This is still a challenge to inspire people to give to an institution. Even so, with a growing frustration with what many perceive to be denominational incompetence or irrelevance or hyper-political activity, the local church is the entity that often feels the financial pinch as people leave because of what they might say the denomination has done or they withhold their financial resources. This challenge faces many PCUSA congregations, and let me be clear, it includes ours as well. 
Some folks think our denomination, and I'm not talking about our denominational offices here. I'm, I'm talking about the decisions that, that the church makes, that the people of God makes at a general assembly level, at the highest level. Some folks think our denomination has neglected its power to create space for diverse and plural perspectives and instead has favored a winner-take-all mentality. Everything is an up-or-down vote. Everything has a hyper-focus that, that wants to produce policy statements or political action. And even for those that agree, even for those that agree with some of these theological and political perspectives, the divisive way in which they are oftentimes processed and promoted leaves many disheartened because these decisions and actions often cause broken connections within the fellowship, not just on a national level, but on a local level as well. This has hurt our global mission coworkers throughout the world. It has hurt our global partnerships. It has damaged some of our ecumenical and interfaith relationships, and it has challenged congregational leadership to keep people unified and connected to one another, especially those that feel as if their theology and even their faith no longer has room at the table. I'm going to share a little bit of kitchen table talk. It's not the kind of stuff that you want to say in front of your guests at the dinner table. It's the kind of stuff you say in front of your family at the kitchen table. For those of you disillusioned by some of the decisions that have been made at the national level, please remember that the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta is a community seeking, and we don't always get this right, but we are striving for this. We are seeking this out to be a distinctively Christian home to be distinctively Christian, but a home for an eclectic, diverse, and missionally focused people. We are a people, I would dare to say, who would rather choose each other than choose sides. Because God has chosen all of us, every one of us, to be the church at this time and in this place. And so for those thinking about withholding financial resources, or even breaking away from First Press because of some of the decisions that have been made on a national level, I'd ask you to consider this simple, albeit imperfect, analogy. Breaking away or withholding from the local church, from First Press in particular, because of these decisions is like a child, in my opinion, is like a child disowning their parents because they disagree with how their grandparents live or behave. We wouldn't punish our parents because of the dissonance we feel with their parents. I would hope that we would stay connected to our parents and work with them to create ways of being family, ways of being family even in our diversity that demonstrates to our grandparents and all families everywhere what it means to be Christian community. With all that said, I come to 1 Chronicles 29, and I want to say to the writer, it's a lot more challenging than you make it appear. In the North American post-Christian, post-denominational, charitable, industrial, complex context in which we live, there is no such thing as a one-verse campaign. It's just not that simple. 
since the recession of 2008. Giving at first press has decreased by 4.4%. And while our 2016 campaign has shown an amazing 8.5% increase in actual dollars. When you're considering people that made pledges in 15, who again made a pledge for 16, plus those who are, are new pledgers, we're up 8.5%. That's good news. We should celebrate that. The hard news is that we've only collected 255 pledges, which is about 43% of the 600 target that we're going for with one week left in our campaign. 255 on our way to 600 with one week to go. Now, I want to explain just one thing about why we've shortened the campaign. One of the data points that when I arrived that our session started to consider and those in the finance committee started to consider was a very clear articulation that our campaigns were too long. That was the feedback that we got from the congregation. Some even said, hey, we talk about money way too much. So we made a decision to shorten the campaign. And we're hopeful that you see leadership honoring that voice, but also doing it in such a way that says, hey, leadership has honored that voice. We need to get our pledge in. Because I think this is the right way. I think shortening the campaign is the right thing to do. We're stewarding that collective intuition. But in order for that to be faithful, we're going to have to make our pledges, which is why pledge cards are in your pews right now. A little public service announcement. <laughs> now, because we're a congregation that has leaders who are proficient in reading the signs of the time, they have stewarded accordingly. We had a surplus in 2014, and we will most likely have a surplus in 2015, as you all, as we all continue to give. This is not a result, however, of revenue increases. It's mostly a result of cutting costs, of cutting costs of ministry. Now, as the 2016 ministry year approaches, we are on the precipice of a tipping point in relationship to our ability to fulfill our current and emerging ministry commitments and the revenue that is actually coming in. And I want to be very clear about this. We are not the Titanic, meaning we're not sinking. I mean, the sky is not falling, but we are entering into a critical season in the life of our congregation. There is energy and excitement in our church. A new vision is on the cusp of emerging that will set us as we move toward our 175th anniversary in 2023. We'll be fully staffed in 2016 with a staff that I would put up against any staff at any church in the country. We have put money behind the priorities of the church for children and youth, young adults, communications, biblical and theological scholarship, the arts, connections, pastoral care, community ministries, and global mission. Now is the time to see if we, like the people of Israel who responded to David's appeal, will step up financially. Now is the time. We are at a crossroads to let our money follow our vision, to gratefully respond to God's activity and to live out the words of 1 Timothy 6, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and to be ready to share. Let me close with this. 
In 1 Chronicles 29.5, King David asked the question, who then will offer willingly, consecrating themselves to the Lord? This word that we translate to the English word consecrating is actually a Hebrew idiom. It's made up of two words, malay, which means filled, and the word yad, which means hand. So literally, this idiom means to have one's hand filled. So it's interesting. It begs the question, why do we translate it to the word consecrating instead of just saying that who is willing to have their hands filled for the work of the Lord? Well, the idiom functioned in the time where priests would be ordained to the ministry of the priesthood, that they would be consecrated. This idiom would be used to talk about the priests who would have their hands filled with the power of God to do God's work. It also could mean that the priest's hand was filled with the sacrifices that the people would give them that they would make on their behalf. It also could mean that their hands were filled with the generosity of the people because priests couldn't own land. They were utterly dependent upon the people's generosity. And so their hands were filled by God's grace with what the people shared so that they could live and carry out their ministry. Here is the final thought. I want to phrase the question for all of us today. Because what David is saying to the people, and this is a beautiful move within the text itself. David is taking this language of a full hand out of the context of priestly categories, and he is including everybody. He's basically saying all of us are priests. All of us are consecrated to a life of financial generosity to what God is doing in the local place, what God is doing in our time and in our terms in the local church. My expectation and my Hope is that we would consider faithfully and prayerfully how full our hands really are. I know we can't have a one-verse campaign. I know we can't have a one-verse mentality when it comes to giving. It is complex. It is hard today for many people. But in so many ways, our hands are filled with the good gifts of God. Who will open their hands? Who of us will open our hands and give generously to what God is doing, not just in this year, not just making a pledge in 16, but beyond so that we may be faithful to the vision that God has called us to, to be the church, First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta in this time and in this place. Let it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world, and all of God's people say, Amen. Friends, our hands are full. Our hands are full. May we open them up and give generously to the work that God is doing in and through this place. And as we discern those gifts and that stewardship life, may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Him. May His peace abide with you live inside of you this day and forevermore. Amen, and go in peace.